You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Acting Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. We'll just we'll start with that, with the with this um, ER nurse who was, um, she clearly had some sort of mental health issues, but that's not the interesting part of the story for us. She was going through a uh, an intersection a, a, through a red light at 130 miles per hour. And at first, the police thought she was just doing, you know, 90, which is still crazy. The interesting thing that we've talked about in the past is they found out how fast she was going by pulling data from her EDR, the electronic data recorder, the black box in the car. And so this is, I mean, kind of one of these things that we've talked about is like possibly a good use of EDR data for for criminal prosecution. Um, <laughs> one of the interesting one of the interesting parts of that whole discussion for me was how much data is in there and uh the edr and the tesla and many edrs apparently from other vehicles include destinations and uh that the car has you know the car has visited over a, a period of time also includes contacts information uh names phone numbers and all of this is readily available to anybody who wants it <clears throat> I think of it particularly in terms of what's now happening with regard to uh, reproductive freedom and abortion rights and the idea that that information, which could be very revealing to somebody who's interested in your reproductive history, is essentially readily available with very few protections to anybody who wants to dig into your car. And what we do know is that the cars uh, have very weak security and that there are a lot of demonstrated hacks and known vulnerabilities for people to get in and use that data. So in this particular case, it was very revealing to the police about the actual speed and uh, performance of the vehicle just before the accident. But it leaves open the question of how that data could be used uh, maliciously or even maliciously legally, if you will, with regard to other activities that might be questionable or might not be questionable. But that whole control and the privacy of that data is, I think, an enormous sleeper issue that goes along with this discussion. And that crash was, and and the data that was pulled out by the prosecutors in LA was what, what interested me because you could tell um, that they had pulled the EDR um, data elements that are um, required by NHTSA for vehicles that have an EDR, um, which was the speed five seconds prior to the collision. It, it looked like they only had that data point, which suggested the vehicle was traveling upwards of 125 miles an hour. Um, and then on top of that, they had the, the, the district attorneys had gotten whether they subpoenaed it or were provided voluntarily we're, we're not aware but they had the internal video from the car so that they they apparently could see the um driver's responses as she was um 
traveling down the road at those high speeds. Um, and that made made up part of their decision um, on how to go ahead with the prosecution. So that, that, that gives you an insight into, you know, kind of like the information that is collected by most of the vehicles on the road now is going to be that five second period uh, before the collision. And from that data alone, you know, you can obviously tell a car is speeding, but you don't have any insight into the condition of the driver based on the EDR data. However, if you look at what all of the other systems that manufacturers are putting in vehicles now that are recording data, the EDR is just one part of that. And in this case, you have video evidence that the district attorney was able to use as well. I mean, and in this case, like Fred said, you know, it's, you know, it probably gives some people pause that are driving Mercedes that hear this story, knowing that their reactions are captured on video prior to a crash. Um, and, and, you know, what that means, obviously most folks wouldn't mind um, video being used to prosecute people in situations like this, but they might be worried about other privacy issues involving that. And, and like Fred says, what happens when bad actors become involved and that information is readily available for them to take either from your car or possibly through, you know, a data breach on Mercedes servers. Yeah, I think this is interesting. If we could tie this into what we've talked about before, it's the the infrastructure vehicle, or I always get that acronym wrong, the V2X9Q squared. Uh, because this is a case where obviously the speed limit is not 130 miles per hour, 125 or, you know, whatever the speed limit is. If it was a situation where the, you know, the infrastructure could be telling the driver, hey, the speed limit here is 50 miles per hour and kind of flash warnings when you're doing X percent above that. Um, you know, then we're, we're getting into a, a, a good safety issue because, you know, unfortunately she killed five people in this crash. Yeah. And I, and in this crash, I'm not even sure that would help someone who's driving that fast in what is a, you know, uh, an, an urban environment and speed limits are very low is well, probably not going to be dissuaded by warnings. Um, and you know, we think the real promise in, in V2X and, and whether it's vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to infrastructure, is being able to absolutely prevent a vehicle from traveling at those speeds um, in those, not only in the, especially in urban environments um, where you could probably get V2X equipment installed in the next 20 years working. Um, but why do we even sell cars that can go that fast to sell, you know, as, as consumer vehicles? America. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, they, they, yeah, okay, America, but I mean, they sell these cars around the world and, you know, only the Germans, as far as I know, have an Autobahn type environment and only well, the well, Anthony, like, come on, you never know when you're going to have to run away from a forest fire and have a wolf chasing your car with the Aurora Borealis overhead. And you really need that speed in order to be safe. I, I think you know that. Oh God! Uh, so from a so from a safety perspective, there's not. I mean, there's nothing clearly because of America that we're going to legislate and do about this. But just from an engineering perspective, there's got to be a, a way to see a situation because this particular woman, she'd been involved in a number of crashes in the past. Um, I see that as something where, like, if you're getting in a car and you're crashing regularly in high speed crashes. There's a, almost like a breathalyzer in, in a car where, you know, you want to drive blow into this pipe. You want to, um, you know, drive your car. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think we can safely say that 
states are not doing their due diligence and following up on bad drivers and assuring they're not on the road. Um, because we see, you know, you see this again and again with repeat DUI offenders and, you know, people who literally can't get on the road without driving recklessly um, and who are not, you know, who are not prosecuted and, and also who are, don't have their license simply removed by the Department of Motor Vehicles. I think in America, we often forget that it's a privilege, not a right. And, you know, you, you can have your privileges suspended. It's just that states aren't inclined to spend a lot of time doing that. And it leads to folks who are incapacitated due to, you know, mental conditions or even, you know, as you, as, as we age, um, some of us will will decline in our driving skills and yet remain resistant to the idea that we that we're going to lose our freedom of, of movement um and so there's a lot of resistance uh, in that area that prevents states from being um on top of enforcement as i think they should be you know getting bad drivers off the road would go a long way towards solving some of the fatality issues we're seeing right now hmm. all right I, I think fred you got something well, I was just going to say, technically, you could probably put a system in place that requires you to insert your license and have it digitally read by the car that would then refer back to a government-maintained database to enforce any restrictions there are associated with your license and disable the car. You could do that. It's, it's really no more complicated than what we do routinely with credit cards. I don't think that would be very popular with the uh, with the public, though. America, yeah, yeah, that one's that that one's hitting me on the creepy scale. But I I, I get that, and all right, so this is a uh, maybe I don't know. Hey, Mercedes, uh, you know your car is fancy enough; doesn't have to go 130 miles per hour um, on an LA side street. All right, so let's. Uh, I want to jump into our, our our segment with a fun intro music recall roundup. Strap in. Time for the recall roundup. You guys love that intro? I do love that intro. All right, good. All right, I'm going to start with, uh, you know, motorcycles because, again, you know, it's still uh, something in my household being discussed. Uh, Not really. So Honda America had to recall their CRF 1100 Africa Twin for engine stall or loss of drive from software error. 1,561 vehicles potentially affected. Um, so there's software in my motorcycle too? Oh, yes. Yes. There's software <laughs> in your refrigerator. There's software in your toaster. No, you've um, not seen my refrigerator. There's there's, there's software in the earphones Chinese that you're wearing. There's, I mean, these are nice headset, but I don't think there's software inside the headset. Is noise there? rejecting, right? No doubt. No, not noise right? rejecting. No way. These are, you know, no, I don't do noise rejection. No, old school. All right. <laughs> so uh, we, we won't crash test motorcycles, but they can have software installed that will cause an engine stall or loss of drive. Okay. That's hey, um, hey, hey, you know, it looks like there's, there's an, um, problem with the electronical electronic control unit um, that runs the engine and the software there and they discovered it in japan germany and italy it looks like before they did in america and they don't have any reported injury incidents in america yet so that's a, a good thing for honda motorcycle riders to get that fixed 
Okay. Well, that's one less brand of motorcycle for him to look at. Um, here, here's a simpler one. I don't think this is software related. This is Toyota, um, and Lexus, the Toyota Tundra 2022, their parking brake may fail. Um, see, that seems mechanical. I mean, my car doesn't even have a parking brake, it just has a parking button. Um, and it looks like 83,725 vehicles potentially affected. Uh, how do you mess up a parking brake? I mean, is it, are these mechanical? Like you're, you're pulling up the old crank and it's pulling a cable still, or is this a, a software thing? Well, it's always software. You know, the, the modern uh, parking brakes don't have a crank that you can pull up and attach to a cable that's going to work the brakes. There is a mechanical component. There's a caliper or a drum or something that will physically connect, you know, physically lock the, uh, the wheel in place. But there's some kind of software mechanism that's typically driving the motor that activates that um, braking mechanism. So yeah, there's there's always software involved. But there are analog parts to it too. There are switches, there are wires, there are connectors there. So we don't know what the source of this particular problem is. But certainly there's both software and hardware and um, all of the aging electronics issues and you know, all of those things go along with any system that includes both electronic and analog devices. And in this one, you know, this recall is kind of weird because it, um, it, it was noticed because not because the parking brake was failing, but because people were getting stuck with their parking brake on and, and, and weren't able to move properly. Um, <laughs> or weren't able to move the vehicle. So that's a, that's a kind of a, um, it's not what you expect when you hear a parking brake recall. Now, that reminds me when I was first learning to drive, like the first time I took a car out on my own and I left the parking brake on and I'm trying to go in reverse. And I'm like, why does it feel like the car just keeps rising up, rising up? Maybe we should hit the gas more. No, wrong answer. Don't hit the gas more. Look at the giant lever next to you. And, you know, I, my, my car doesn't have that giant lever. So it's very nerve wracking when my 17 year old's learning to drive and I'm in the passenger seat. I'm like, how do I stop this car in an emergency? Yeah, I've got a button now. Yeah, I got. I, I I don't want to hit the button. I don't know what the button will do. I've never touched the button. It does it automatically. Anyway, and now uh, I'm going to jump into one more because um, this is fun. You can see this on the Center for Auto Safety Twitter um, site where this is a crazy looking RV tour bus thing, and this is Jayco. The their Integra various models. The Jayco Embark, I've never even heard of Jayco. Jayco Embark, the water drain not installed in air intake box, which may cause water to enter the gas to enter the engine and cause engine failure. Um, only 856 vehicles potentially affected. I mean, this just sounds like these things were installed on a Friday afternoon. Like, well, you know, there's the RV market has a very different um, assembly process, I think, than what we think of with passenger vehicles, because they're a lot of those they're getting chassis and they're doing a lot of secondary manufacturing on top of um, vehicle chassis built by other corporations. So um, we see a lot of interesting issues like this, where there are routing and um, it's, it, it doesn't appear, you know, they don't appear to be in, to have been designed by the, the teams over in, uh, 
Germany behind Volkswagen and Mercedes and some of these folks. There's some, there's a lot of, um, you know, interesting engineering decisions that are made on RVs. Mm, round peg, square hole, smash. <laughs> That's always a good move. So this, this I take is not a software error. Uh -huh. It does not appear to have involved any sort of software. Oh, excellent. And that concludes this week's recall roundup. So speaking of software, our friends at NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, has released a new report, the Cybersecurity Best Practices for the Safety of Modern Vehicles. That is a mouthful. Um, and basically, this is uh, the last time they did this was 2016. We're saying, hey, your cars are basically rolling computers. Um, we should probably treat them with some modicum of security practices. Uh, and just give guidelines. And again, as far as I can tell, and I know you guys are just going to disappoint me, that these are not regulations. These are just guidelines. Hopefully, maybe if you want to do this, let's make it s slightly harder for the average teenager to hack into a car. Um, what's the big takeaway from this report? Well, I think the title is a bit of a misnomer, as you point out. It, it should really be cyber kind of maybe okay practices if you read between the lines that would make the title a little smaller though a little shorter yeah. oh we can go we can turn it into an acronym i'm sure but i haven't thought of the best one yet um you know there's a lot of homespun wisdom in there the kind of it's the kind of practice you would get if you went to a cracker barrel restaurant and talked with people about cyber security and what they thought was a good idea and this is kind of the, the result that you would get from that. Um, How do you not, really feel? It's not terribly bad, but it, you know, it certainly leaves a lot of things open. I do want to point out that they had the opportunity to incorporate many of the recommendations we made the last time around. And uh, I inventoried them, and they actually incorporated at least one of the recommendations that we put in about, of course... The other dozen didn't quite make it. So, you know, we could talk about this in terms of what they have in there, which is a little bit nebulous, or we could talk some more about what they don't have in there. Well, I, I think stepping back and, and seeing the actual problem, because I think people don't realize there's cases where a few years ago people were um, using Bluetooth to break into Teslas and drive away with them. Um, and there's a, there's a thing. So like yeah, all modern cars have a key fob. You're not really using a key and an ignition anymore. And I know with my car, like if I, the car's running and I walk away with the key in my pocket, it will start bah, 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 and it'll eventually turn itself off. Um, and it's also neat if I get close to the car, it'll unlock the doors for me. But apparently there's a way to, um, uh, you know, you can go up to someone theoretically, go up to someone's house, have this device to, search for that signal in the house, amplify it, and bounce it off to your friend who's at the car and basically make a copy of this because it's completely unencrypted, totally insecure, and steal a car. Um, so there's those types of things. Um, and there's a there's an interesting article I came across called uh, Some Hyundai and Kia models are way too easy to steal <laughs> because they lack immobilizers. I don't know what an immobilizer is. I mean, I think I ate one once and it didn't go over well. Uh, yeah, Hyundai and Kia's are really getting stolen based on a TikTok video or something. I think. Oh, right? 
there's uh, uh, someone put it out and then it, it's it hasn't happened at least the most recent article it hasn't happened everywhere but in certain localities they have seen just an explosion in thefts of kia and hyundai vehicles so do you have to do like a specific dance like and then it unlocks i don't know anything about tiktok yeah you know i i don't i don't i don't know uh i i wish tiktok was all about just dancing and not sharing ways to steal cars <laughs> well there are some famous hand gestures i've seen deployed in the direction of Hyundai and Kia drivers that, you know, maybe that's part of the process. I'm not completely sure. That could be it. So uh, basically the, the problem is that it's uh, auto manufacturers design these basically rolling computers and they use software development, software security practice, I should say, from another century when everyone was nice and no one locked their doors at night. And so NHTSA is trying to say, hey, uh, these cars are too easy to steal, take, spoof, download on TikTok. Um, and so, uh, and uh, as you guys have told me way too many times that auto manufacturers can do whatever the hell they want and there's no regulations on anything. Yeah. Are any auto manufacturers actually trying to make good decisions with software? I think they're all trying to make good decisions with software, but the problem is that's a difficult thing to do. And uh, you know, one of the things that we recommended to NHTSA is that they use third parties to validate whether or not the auto manufacturers have done a good job. So, you know, in the same way that the um, IIHS the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety does crash testing of vehicles in a sense to validate what the results of the NHTSA crash testing is. There could and should be an independent authority or at least a set of standards that would allow a suitably certified third-party laboratories to investigate and validate the cybersecurity of commercial vehicles. Um, there, there is nothing like that. And sadly, that was not one of the recommendations that we made adopted by the NHTSA and its current cybersecurity recommendations. So what are they, uh, before we even get into what they recommend, I want to know what is in, what's in a mobilizer um, and that, that Kia and Hyundai lack because I like their new EVs. They look very cool. I'm not sure technically exactly what the immobilizer is. I think that it's just... A, a software device or a, a software that will, unless you've got the proper recognition of the actual key or whatever the key fob is, it's equivalent, will prohibit the car from being started. <clears throat> so what, you know, what I read is that by connecting a certain circuit inside the um, steering column of a Kia, you can bypass whatever the functionality is that is the immobilizer in other cars and just go ahead and start the car and get it off and running. And apparently it's very simple to do that, though I haven't seen the TikTok. I'm not a TikTok user myself. Mm, uh, apparently it's pretty simple to do that. So I think that's what the immobilizer is. Okay, so it's no longer, you don't even have to cut wires like they do in the movies and hotwire a car. You can just go there and download an app with your phone. 
I used to do that hot wire, and that was kind of fun to do. A lot of sparks, and all of a sudden the engine would start. But yeah, it's it's been a while. For those at home keeping count, this is the second felony that Fred has admitted to on this podcast. <laughs> no, 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 no. Misdemeanor at, at worst. Uh, it was a small car. It was a, it was a Hugo. <laughs> <laughs> they used to encourage that with Hugos, actually. You got points taken off your license if you stole a Hugo. <laughs> right. So uh, is is there anything is there anything that you guys see in this NHTSA report that you're like, all right, they're doing something good or is this, you know, they're still with cybersecurity, which is such a dumb name for this cybersecurity. Is there with software security, is there is there something where they're making progress or are they still a decade behind the curve? You know, well, it's hard it's hard to say really because there're so many new parts coming out every day and so many new networks and systems and communications uh wait you know we've got 5g what's going to happen next 6g that it just seems like you know these things are going to continue to be imminently hackable unless there's some sort of um safety net put in place either through NHTSA regulation or through a strong you know I, I, I don't know how else it's going to happen really I, I think that regulation ultimately is probably the only thing that's going to make uh all the automakers get really secure in this area the, we've seen um you know this 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 guidance that NHTSA puts out is completely non-binding completely voluntary which i think given its broad nature most manufacturers who are involved in the process of securing their vehicle software won't even look at it while they're doing that. So it's, I just don't think it's, you know, a, a very revelatory document that's going to guide us to a safer, more secure um, future and that we need a lot more work in this area. But let's be clear, there are systems that are cyber secure. Um, aircraft are cyber secure. They have long had regulations requiring cybersecurity of commercial aircraft. There are technologies in place that allow cybersecurity to be implemented in aircraft. Um, it, is, it is enforced. It does work. There has never been a record, at least as far as I know, of any commercial aircraft being hacked in any meaningful way. So the question is not, can they be made cybersecure? The question really is, are the auto companies willing to step up to what's required to make them cyber secure. There is nothing in this NHTSA document that encourages the companies to do that. There is a whole world of information out there that's readily available that they could use to make vehicles cyber secure. What does it take to make them to do it? I don't think a gentle suggestion, um, you know, a, a pat on the head is really the right approach. It requires regulations and enforcement. I think you just solved it and, I, and you don't even realize it. So if airplanes, they have to go through this certification. I don't know why I can't speak certification. What we need to do is really push for not self-driving cars, but flying cars. And so then the FAA will take over and we get rid of these ground-based vehicles, these ground huggers, as I like to call them. We go to flying cars, let the FAA take over it, and there you go. They got to be certified. Well, that's a great idea. Unfortunately, they're running away ahead of you, and they're asking the FAA to provide various waivers for the self 
uh, the, you know, the, the flying cars and the flying taxis and all that stuff that they're trying to put in place now. So, well, great idea, but you're behind the curve, Anthony. Damn it. Damn it. Okay. So this, uh, the, 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 the uh, bleh, does the NHTSA thing, just, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going on there. Maybe my tongue got bigger, my mouth got smaller. Um, does this NHTSA report, this their thing, does this cover um, right to repair laws? Because that's one of the issues um, where since all this is software controlled, each manufacturer is saying, hey, if you want to repair your Toyota, you got to go to an authorized Toyota dealer or an authorized Tesla dealer. And obviously for a consumer, you're going to pay more money going to the dealer versus an independent network. And I know we run into these problems with our phones. Like if you want to repair your iPhone, <laughs> good luck. Right. But yeah. Massachusetts recently passed the law where the right to repair, where you as the consumer have the right to open up your devices, go ahead, invalidate their bogus warranties. Let's say if you even look at this sideways, we it's it's on it's no longer covered under warranty. And I know with trucking industries, you know, who manage a fleet of vehicles, they need to go in there and change and not change software, but they need to diagnose their vehicles. So is NHTSA addressing that problem? You know, I think NHTSA is mainly trying to stay out of that issue um, in some ways. I know that there, I did see an article that suggested that, um, that NHTSA had suggested that right of repair and cybersecurity um, can be both, can be done together. Um, but it, it, you know, it raises questions anytime you have someone beyond the manufacturer, um, opening up a, a, a software based system, you know, there's, and being able to repair it, they're going, I mean, I, I don't see how there's not inevitably a tension of some sort between safely securing the software in a vehicle and, allowing um independent repair of vehicles i think that's something that's going to have to be worked very hard on um in the future fred from an engineering point of view what what's the concern i mean obviously if i manage a fleet of trucks i'm not going in there to hack them to make them break or so i can take them over i need to fix you know problem x well and if have you ever worked in an organization that has an IT specialist? Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, and so what uh, happens? The IT specialist comes along and says, if you touch this, I will break your fingers. If you have a problem, let me know, and I will come and fix it for you because we don't want any doo-doo heads getting into the computer and screwing things up. It's really you know, kind of a very similar issue. The... You know, we've talked about all of these software problems. We've talked about cybersecurity. All of these are issues that are that really point to the fact that the cyber systems are very delicate and lovely beasts. And, you know, if you get in there with, with a hammer or a screwdriver and start to fool around, a lot of things can happen, almost all of them bad. And I think it's a valid concern on the part of the manufacturers that this delicate and beautiful organizational device that they've put in the hands of all of us simians, you know, it, it should stay secure. Um, so it's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to do. I'm sure you've downloaded, uh, not you, Anthony, I know you're downloaded. not that sort of person, but I, you know, some people have downloaded software from the internet, which has caused certain problems. 
like you know catfishing and destruction of your computer and all of your records. I, I happen to have downloaded software from Microsoft one time that deleted years of photographs, but that's a whole different story. Yeah. But you know, but but that goes back to the the uh, the whole issue of software validation, the right to repair, and you know, what is the, what is the appropriate overlap between these two? perhaps divergent universes. Oh, I think with that, you've just said the magic word of the week, Indeed. software validation. Oh, I'm so Net excited. <laughs> Play the intro music. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. All right. How do you like that music. intro? Was that, that's good intro, right? That's a that wonderful is. intro. All right. <laughs> so okay. uh, Tao of Fred, I love that. Um, all right, so we're going to talk a little bit about software validation. So those of you who are inclined to like this stuff, listen up. Those of you who are not, you might want to pull out a pillow right now. But so software validation really is the, I'm quoting a definition, the process of establishing documented evidence that confirms a computer system has been installed correctly, will meet users' needs and functions according to its intended use. Makes no, perfect sense, right? No, A English, please. No, English. No. Um, software validation does the damn thing work? That's what uh -huh. it really means. Okay. And so uh, there are various steps in, in software validation. The first is regression testing. So is this new software that you're putting in there going to do any damage? Or will it work the same way as the old one did in similar situations? That's what regression testing is all about. Um, there's also something called bi-directional verification. So if you have a requirement that the software is supposed to do something, number one, does it really do that? But number two, if the software is doing something, can you trace that back to the original requirement that said it's supposed to do something? So it's really no different than balancing your checkbook, right? On the one end, you've got the checks. On the other hand, you've got your statement. You reconcile your statement, make sure that there are no unexpected expenses in there. So it's really the same process for software. And if it doesn't work, we just, here's an updated patch to fix it. Well, sometimes mm -hmm. yes, sometimes no. So one of the problems um, for automated vehicles is that a lot of them rely on artificial intelligence. Now, what does artificial intelligence mean? It means that it's artificial, <laughs> right? So if you have artificial intelligence, no human being can really tell what the hell is going on because it's this impenetrable process of, of computer junk. Nobody really understands it. But you have a lot of inputs on one end and a lot of outputs on the other. Nobody knows what happens in between. So this basic okay. concept of bi-directional verification, right, balancing your checkbook, is impossible. Now, every self-driving car that I know of has a lot of components that use artificial intelligence. So basically every self-driving car is not able to have the proper kind of software verification that you would like to have in any safety critical application. So that's that's a real problem. So um, we know what goes into it, we know what came out of it, but we don't know how it did it. Right. That's lovely, but it works really well. I mean, come on, we've been building neural networks since the 80s. Sure, it always works really well, except when it doesn't. So, for example, um, Ariane 5 
1996. Ergon 5 was a really, really big rocket produced by the Europeans. And on, it was the French. Say it was the French. It was French. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a story. <laughs> Actually, I'll go ahead and digress here. Um, Ergon 5 was basically developed because of NASA arrogance. So NASA developed a space shuttle and NASA decreed that all satellites being launched into space would go up in a space shuttle. There were some people who had satellites they wanted to launch that were incompatible with the kind of vibrations the space shuttle um, was producing. So NASA said, stuff it, you're going to have to use the space shuttle. The French raised their hand <laughs> and said, oh, we can go ahead and you know develop a, a rocket that's going to give you a softer ride, and we'll call that the Ariane. So that's, that's where the Ariane came from. Anyway, I digress. So on June 4th, 1996, um, they tried to launch Ariane 5. They never did what's called stress testing on the software. And stress testing is when you intentionally load inputs into the software that really push it to the limits. So does it have enough memory? Um, is it able to do things that, that might happen, even though they're not supposed to happen? It's kind of like determining whether or not your software is sitting on the edge of a precipice. So if you give it a little nudge, is it going to fall over the precipice? That's what stress testing is all about. That's part of the software validation process because you want to make sure that if something unexpected happens, you don't end up with a catastrophe. Well, with the Ariane 5, they never did the stress testing. So when they actually launched it, what they discovered is that they were trying to load a 64-bit number into a 16-bit register. And what the hell does that mean? It means they were trying to pour 100 gallons of gasoline into a paper cup. Okay, so the numbers just spilled out the end. The computer didn't know what would happen. And all of a sudden, there was a spectacular, unexpected light show over French Guiana, which I'm sure dazzled all the coastal inhabitants there uh, for the loss of $370 million. So this, this whole software validation process is fundamental to all of the safety of any safety critical software systems. It is not done, is not even recommended in these NHTSA guidelines that we talked about. So this, this whole idea of software validation is very important. It's very difficult. Um, it's something that should be highly emphasized in any guidelines for cybersecurity, as well as just for so, uh, safety critical software development. Unfortunately, it's not. Um, you are still awake here? Uh, yeah, I'm just, you know, crying on the inside again and afraid to step outside my house. All right. Well, another good one then. Uh, the <laughs> Mars the Orbiter. The Arion, I had one quick question on the Arion. Yeah. I, I only saw the video, but I was trying to contemplate how exactly that happened. Um, when it, because it looked as though it was going along just fine. And then it, I don't know if it tried to change directions at a higher speed than it was supposed to. What were the physical, what was the physical outcome of the 64 bit stuff being, you know, the, being poured into a, a 16 bit system? Yeah, well, essentially, I thought it was pointed up mm -hmm. or it thought it was pointed, it thought it was starting to point down when it was actually pointing up. So it tried to make a turn to correct that error. And it got sideways in the airstream, 
right about the time when max Q, maximum dynamic pressure, occurred. Um, another digression, when a, a rocket takes off, it goes up into the air and speed accelerates, right? So the air density decreases as you go to increased altitude, ultimately going to outer space where air density is very low. So there's a crossover between the amount of pressure associated with the speed of the rocket and the decreasing air density. So the max Q, maximum dynamic pressure, occurs at some 40,000 or 50,000 feet when the rocket's starting to go really fast and the um, atmosphere is, is starting to thin, but it's still thick enough. It's kind of like getting sideways in a canoe in a fast river around a rock. Right. Uh, if you've ever done that, it's a lot of fun. But it's, a, it's the same kind of phenomenon that caused the Arion to break up. And of course, once it broke up, the, the rocket basically is a tin can full of flammable material. So it was a spectacular light show. Spectacular light show. So did but they learn the lessons in the Ariane 6 and, and make a new one that, you know, yeah, had they, registers? they did. They did. You know, it only took a few hundred million dollars and, you know, several, probably several hundred careers ruined, but that's okay. We, we learn as we go along. Right. Um, unfortunately, not all of those lessons were learned well enough. Uh, the Mars Orbiter in 1999, the NASA program, uh, they never did the bilateral testing that we talked about prior to launch. Remember, we talked about how you have a requirement, it's supposed to do something, and you validate that. And then if something happens, you go back and you try to find out that there was a requirement that made it happen. So you've got control over the whole process. Well, in the Mars orbiter, they never did bilateral testing of the thrusters that control the satellite attitude prior to launch with enough accuracy to determine this problem. And the problem was that one of the programs was using a set of units, uh, standard American units, for the amount of energy that was coming out of the thrusters versus the validating program, which was using the metric standard units that were expected. <laughs> so there was a little mismatch there. Um, this was back in the era of faster, better, cheaper at NASA, which happily has gone away. But, you know, they were really trying to strip things down and do things much better and faster. And, of course, they got neither better nor faster nor cheaper out of it. This, um, this one sounds like too obvious of a mistake to make, though. Like, this is be because like, yeah, I, I think the space shuttle, the space program, they use metric for everything, right? They weigh cargo in, not in pounds, but in kilograms. They like use metric for everything except this particular control <laughs> software. Yes. Mm -hmm. Don't let the interns in. Yeah. Okay. So um, one of the recommendations that came out of that was to audit the software for the use of Imperial units, which seems like a good idea. And, you know, I think that actually happened. And we haven't seen a repeat of this particular error since. They've had a really good string lately and still doing spectacular things. So I give them credit for that. But but this was another example of inadequate software validation causing a catastrophic error in a, in a very complex and very highly audited and uh, well-supervised program. This one ended up costing, uh, I think, less. I think it was part of the order of $250 million. So 
you know, that's only $1 per American citizen, so hardly matters, but. Right. I'd pay $2 for that. So with auto manufacturers, so we, we know with the airline industry, like Boeing and Airbus, when they come across, because no, no software was ever perfect, and they come across errors that either result into plane crashes, like there was the Air France case like 15 years ago where um, uh, the, the pitot tubes were clogged. And so it there was a mismatch between its actual speed, its airspeed, and its ground speed. And so the plane just didn't know what to do, and it crashed. And so they they do massive investigations. They figure out what happens here, what goes wrong, and they issue updates to all of their customers saying, hey, do this. In the case of the pitot tubes, I think was um, put a little cover over it so hornets don't go in there and build a nest. Um, you know, there's another Airbus case where like autopilot engaged because the this Russian pilot let his kid up there and the kid just played around and and he jerked the, uh, the, 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 the yaw too far to the right and that locked um, that disengaged autopilot, but there's no notification that this actually happened. So the pilots had no idea what was going on. They're fighting a computer system. Um, but again, they do investigations. They figure out what happens. They use the black box data, update all of the airlines, and they release software updates. And this becomes public information. Do any auto manufacturers or their subcontractors who build these systems go ahead, like the the case of Tesla's ramming into stopped emergency vehicles because their systems can't see it is this stuff gets released are updates sent to their customers or regulations updated i already know the answer oh god no there's there's really nothing there although you know we did see last week nitsa basically told the gm crews their autonomous vehicle platform that they had to report a um, software change that they made in response to a crash in June. Um, and what we're hoping is that at some point that uh, expands or updates the agency's recall um, rules to make manufacturers report any software changes to, to critical safety software. Um, and you know we haven't seen too much evidence they're willing to do that at this point but you know their, their actions recently suggest that 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 could be a possibility does the department of transport who who investigates these you know large scale crashes i mean okay there's local police but they're just filling something out like you know a plane crash you have the faa the the, the ntsb is, is involved in that okay so do they release reports in car crashes so because in airplane crashes you can get all that all becomes public so the ntsb releases them in large typically um crashes that are involved heavy trucks and you know commercial vehicles and then they have also looked into a few of the tesla incidents and some of the some of the broader um issues such as you know whether humans are, are capable of driving a vehicle that distracts them from the driving task um for so long a period can they re-engage so the ntsb has been very helpful and push nits actually um to make uh to take steps to kind of rein in uh some of the behaviors that we're seeing involving teslas and to a smaller extent some of the other um crash avoidance and uh new tech systems so the national transportation safety board that michael was talking about 
does an excellent job of investigating incidents and they do publish the reports and they do make recommendations for all of the involved parties or stakeholders, if you will, um, that could be used to avoid the similar situation in the future. That's the good news. The bad news, everybody is free to ignore the NTSB recommendations because it has no regulatory power. So if and when it makes a recommendation, for example, to National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to do something, NHTSA can and will ignore it. <laughs> uh, sometimes, sometimes the recommendations are not ignored, but there is no mechanism by which the uh, NHTSA or anybody else has to absorb and uh, implement the recommendations that come out of the NTSB. You don't see that with airlines. It's not like Southwest, you know, gets a notice from Boeing, hey, upgrade this, and they go, nah, we're not going to do that. Like, well, how do we put that pressure on auto manufacturers to just be like, nah, we don't have to do that? Well, the difference is that airplanes um, can only fly if they have a valid type certificate and they are certified to be in conformance with a flight certificate. There's nothing like that for, for vehicles. And, you know, we think that as the vehicle complexity increases, there's got to be a point you cross at which the government needs it to be involved or some third party who's qualified to make the judgment is involved in saying that, yeah, this, this very complex device actually does what it's supposed to do and does it in a manner that is reasonably safe. And I'll point out here, too, because it's a good spot. The, the amount of money that NHTSA receives for doing this type of thing pales in comparison to what the FAA receives. I mean, the difference between their budgets is enormous, particularly when you factor in the number of aviation fatalities we see per year against the number of vehicle fatalities we see per year. Um, I, I think for the agency to get on top of some of these software issues um, and have the expertise to do so, they need a, a, a much, um, they need a cash injection a la similar what the FAA has. Um, but the FAA also has something that's really important. You know, they, they the manufacturers of, of jets come to them with their plans for approval before they put the they, they they are able to fly commercially and sell these to to airlines so in the in the as we've probably spoken about before on the podcast vehicle manufacturers go through a process of self-certification um which essentially means they say hey we're we're good here we've we've done the testing we've done our due diligence and we're going to sell it we'll put a label on the they put a put a label on the door and it's good to go um that's something that 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 Boeing and some of the other folks manufacturing um, jets would would love to see in their industry, but it would also probably result in a much higher um, crash rate in commercial airlines than we've seen in the past. Hmm. So, what do we as consumers? What do we what do we do to get this to change? Who did you vote for the last time the election rolled around? <laughs> I got felonies. I can't vote. Oh, wait, no, that's you. That's you announcing your No, felony. no, no, no. Innocent <laughs> until proven guilty. Uh, all right. 
You know, I think a lot of we've seen a lot of folks, you know, demanding more information on software and the modifications that are going in their vehicles. I know that, you know, it's unsettling to me to think that the vehicle I drove yesterday is going to have its performance characteristics changed overnight by an update or something. So um, being transparent, providing the public with notice of any modifications like that that occur on their vehicles is, is a first good step. Um, at least then we can be aware of, of what's, what might ultimately kill us uh, versus not knowing at all, right? Yeah, but I'm dead. I don't care what killed me. No, there's, another, there's another problem, which is publicity. You know, when an airplane crashes, typically a larger number of people get killed. When an automobile crashes, typically a much smaller number of people get killed. Um, so nobody hears about it. It's just not present. And, uh, you know, if you took all of the people killed in a certain year um, in automobile accidents and you were able to collapse that to a single community or, you know, a, a single event that caused the equivalent number of deaths, I think that you would see a very different public response. Um, but unfortunately, the hazards associated with automobiles are so diffuse that it's just really hard to identify uh, that hazard to the general public. You go out every day, you drive your car, you get home, you don't think about it a whole lot. The the catastrophes are something that occurs far away and um, and not too often in your perception. So it just it doesn't rise to the problem of the hazard that it should. So globally, in 2021, the number of uh, air traffic fatalities was 176 people um, for the entire world. For the U.S. in car crashes in 2021 was what 35,000 deaths? No, it's more than that. It's up oh. in the 40s now. So, and that's just for the United States, right? I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't. I mean, and I'm looking back over the last since 20. 2006, the year with the most airplane world uh, air traffic fatalities was 2010, which had 943. Um, but that sounds like a rounding error compared to just auto crashes in the United States alone per year. Right. So if you said, you know, if the situation were um, the city of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, was suddenly destroyed by a catastrophe and 40,000 people died, um, you know, all of those, all of those lives that you were lost were, you know, would, would cause some spontaneous action. You know, and on September 11th, 2001, uh, I don't know the exact number, over 2,000 people died, and we launched a lot of wars and a lot of activity uh, that cost many thousands of lives and many trillions of dollars and you know it's a worldwide phenomenon so, why you know why don't we have a similar level of urgency associated with the uh, automobile deaths why don't we do the simple steps that would be required to reduce these deaths by a, a dramatic number it's not it's not clear to me so what you're saying is with over 40,000 deaths a year, the U.S. should launch a war against Detroit. I was that, thinking, no, is more, that's, of, I was uh -oh. thinking more of uh, Nagoya in Japan, but okay. that, you know, 
We've done that one before, though. That would be easier to sell, though. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I, I think that's what it comes down to, is explaining to people how many people actually die on the highways versus you know, an airline and the amount, the little amount of regulation and funding, as Michael just pointed out, that the regulators spend on automobile safety issues versus airline safety issues. Right. And there's other issues too, like, you know, the, ex the experience and training an average pilot has obviously dwarfs your average driver. Um, <laughs> right. So Fred's daughters just got it in the mail, their driver's license. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there are a lot of factors there that go into those, those, those statistics. Um, but it's, it's, you know, I think that the government, if they're going to declare war, needs to declare war on, you know, distracted, drunk, incapacitated driving and um, start from there because and, and reckless driving, because that's where we're really seeing some of the um, big rises in, in crashes or in fatality numbers at the moment. I like it. Then the roads will be empty and I'll feel safe. And then I can just go woohoo and go lane to lane and just, you know, I'm not using my turn signal like everybody else. Well, that's know, not what we want you to say. Oh, damn it. If you look at it from a, from a slightly higher altitude, uh, one of the fundamental problems is that the United States punted on public transportation. So if, you know, if, if you live in a rural community, you have no, well, your, your options are to either walk ride a bicycle or own a car there's there's really or maybe have a horse i don't know but <laughs> you know uh, there are there are very few options available to you if you want to remain part of the modern economy it's a very different situation than many other parts of the world where you do have those options so you know if if people in the united states found a lot more restrictions associated with their use of an automobile in the interest of safety they would also get really annoyed because it uh, limits their ability to engage with the rest of the world in these social activities and business activities. So part of the solution should be to expand access to public transportation in ways that are meaningful for people who you know want to live a normal life. Again, there you go, pushing your hippie left-wing agenda. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's hard to give that up. <laughs> Okay. And with that, it's time for listener mail. There is no listener mail this week. Okay. No one wrote in. Come on. Somebody has a question somewhere about regression testing, about the difference between neural networks and situated action in artificial intelligence. Come on. Anything. I'm we sure somebody wants to know the difference between a 16-bit and a 64-bit register. Come on, folks. Absolutely. I mean, one's really big inside the 7-Eleven. Um, you know, every, every time I install software on my computer, I still have to look up what whether I have 32 or 64. For whatever reason, I can't remember. Why should you? <laughs> Seriously, you shouldn't remember. Why, why should you care? You shouldn't. That's bad software engineering. All right. Um, well, should we talk about event-based versus uh, time-based software? This is one of my pet peeves, actually. <laughs> I, and I'll just digress here for another minute. You know, people talk about music. well. People talk about real time, real time activities, like you know, the 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 fevered news reports that this is happening in real time. Well, what the hell does that actually mean? You know, in in the software world, it means that things are going to happen at a specific time. So, for example, if you have a 
a rocket launch, you want something For to more information, visit www.autosafety.org. Event-based software is stuff that happens as quickly as it can. So, you know, one thing happens after another task is completed. So in the old days, when we did a new computer, the new computer was really a lot faster than the old computer, right? Because it was all event-based software. And as the events took place faster because you had a faster computer, the overall process was faster. With a faster computer, if you had real-time software, nothing would happen faster because everything was happening at the same time that it was supposed to happen. Now, there was one event that occurred when people were doing the simulation of, uh, of software for a rocket using event-based software, but the rocket had time-based software. And so as they were going through it, it looked almost real when they were doing the simulations. And of course, it could occur a lot faster when you do the simulation because it's event-based. And so you zipped right through it and you went to your boss and said, well, I've done 150 simulations in the last 20 minutes. Everything looks great. We're ready to go. So then they pushed the button to launch the rocket and it didn't go because the rocket had time-based software, real-time software versus the event-based software. So this is, you know, this is another problem when we talk about simulation and software development for vehicles. They all use simulation. They almost never use real-time simulation because it's too damn slow. If you're trying to simulate a million events that could happen to your car in the space of the eight hours you got available in a day to do it, you're not going to do that with time-based software. And your car, your vehicle, is likely going to have some time-based uh, capabilities built into it because, for example, the, uh, the uh, fuel injector is going to push fuel into the car a certain with a certain delay after you push the accelerator because it's physics they you know th things have to happen when they're supposed to happen so i just wanted to throw that in as another as another teaser for all of our listeners to send in questions saying what the hell are you talking about real time is real time so thank you <laughs> okay um, wake up listeners press stop now the show's over <laughs>